0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 20, Proverbs 20 this morning, looking at uh, verses 8 and 9, Proverbs 20, verses 8 and 9. I want to get a little political as we uh, have a king that's in view in verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of justice disperses all evil with his eyes. And uh, we got a little bit of a start on it last week. and i want to pick up right where we left off and be able to wrap that up. And then we can look at verse 9. Who can say I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. I can say that. I can say that because I'm saved by grace through faith. And because of the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf, I can say what this verse uh, asks in a hypothetical kind of way assuming that the answer is nobody. But the answer is not nobody. The answer is Jesus Christ and in Christ the answer includes me. And so these are the the marvelous truths that we're going to take the time to to celebrate here this morning from Proverbs chapter 8. All right. well assuming everybody here is situated and everyone watching on YouTube is situated let's uh, begin with a word of prayer and ask our Father's blessing upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding, open our ears, soften our hearts, bless our time of study today, might we receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, and so as we were looking at this, we were in main point seven. Remember we start a new outline every time we start a new chapter and we're now, 20 chapters into a 31 chapter book that might give a ballpark figure for how many more years it's expected for us, rapture pending, to get to uh, Proverbs 31 and to, to finish this book study. But as we uh, deal with it here, um, if I have the slideshow going, there we go. The best kings sit on a throne of justice. Now, not every throne is a throne of justice. If you have a wicked king, he probably is sitting on a throne of injustice. And uh, the way this world works is, uh, of course it's a fallen world and Satan uh, puts his minions where he wants them in the permissive will of God so we can see these things for what they are. And so not every king sits on a throne of justice. But when Jesus Christ comes and sits on the throne of David that will be a throne of justice. And a godly king, president, governor, mayor, what have you, uh, would be sitting on a throne of justice. So we're looking at politics and we're looking at ideal politics as uh, the case may be. The best of kings sits on a throne of justice. Functioning in wisdom, he can rule with righteous judgment. And that's beneficial. Politically it's beneficial. And then personally, of course, all of us should be judging with righteous judgment. One of my favorite verses on this is uh, John chapter 7 and verse 24. And we'll be looking at that because uh, I don't know about you, but occasionally I have these, uh, these uh, opponents, I don't know what to call them, adversaries. Uh, but they, um, they're they typically uh, God-haters or Bible deniers. But curiously enough, they know one verse in the Bible, and that one verse is the one they like to throw at you all the time, and they say, judge not, lest thou be judged. And they like to quote, and really misquote, and abuse Matthew 7, as if that's the only verse in the Bible that that exists and they throw it at you as if that's their walk-away drop-mic moment and uh, that they can leave you speechless after that and they can keep doing what they're doing. Uh, but no, I think John 7, 24 is a marvelous answer to that. And there's quite a bit that uh, deals with our personal judgments that we make. We are to be discerning and that means we are to be discriminating in our judgments and in our evaluations so that we can avoid what is evil and cling to what is good so that love would be indeed without hypocrisy. And all these things are vital for us to understand. And even the verse they like to to quote, the judge not lest thou be judged, is actually abused and twisted and taken out of application. It means we do judge but we hold ourselves to the same accountability. And we're going to talk about all that this morning. I'm just rambling now as we get started. But let's, uh, let's pick up with what we were dealing with last week. Get our Bible window up and run in here. All right. So again, this is main point seven in the structural outline, the expository outline for Proverbs chapter 20. The best kings sit on a throne of justice. Functioning in wisdom, he can rule with righteous judgment and be God's instrument for national blessing. He can be God's instrument for national blessing. And I believe we see this here when you read all of verse 8 in its entirety, the A part and the B part. Yes, the king who sits on the throne of justice, what does he do? He winnows, he sifts, he, he disperses all evil with his eyes. In other words, he's able to see through the truth and the lies, and he's able to separate like wheat from chaff. And the language of winnowing is the language of, of separating, and that means you've got to be discerning. That means you discriminate, and, and to me, I think one of the biggest things the, the, the devil does is he makes discrimination a bad word so that everybody's afraid to discriminate when we're called to discriminate in the appropriate places. To to discriminate between good doctrine and false doctrine. Between good and evil. Between righteousness and unrighteousness. and uh, And these things that we see here. So, dispersing all evil with his eyes. There's a footnote there that says, or sifting. Sifting with his eyes. And that's the verb that we have. And in fact we have it here and uh, also down in uh, verse 26 you'll notice of the same chapter, Proverbs 20 and verse 26, a wise king winnows. That's the same verb that we have of what he's doing with his eyes in verse 8, dispersing or winnowing. And uh, what happens in the ancient world, they take the 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 hay and the 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 straw and the chaff together, and they throw it up in the air. they do this on a on a hilltop so that the wind comes through, and the chaff is lighter the chaff is blown away by the wind, the heavier falls to the ground, and that's what they are able to gather and that's the winnowing process when they're trying to remove the the chaff from the uh from the wheat and uh, but this is what the, a king can do with his eyes. How about that you know? not like he's shooting laser beams out or anything, but it does mean that he has the kind of insight that God gives him. And if he's a righteous king sitting on a righteous throne, functioning in God's righteous wisdom, then what he sees, the perspective he gets on that basis is God's perspective. And so with God's perspective, remember God's not fooled. And with God's perspective he can see right through all the lies and and see the truth for what it is. He can sift through, if you will, Sifting he can sift through the, the the fake news, if you will, and uh, and see the truth and see the reality of, of each matter that comes before him for judgment and so uh, verse twenty six again a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the threshing wheel over them and it can be uh, you know this is the, this is the process the the metaphor the agricultural metaphors that we have of wheat for example, because it has to go through the the sifting process. And then once the the wheat is identified, then what happens? Then it gets ground as uh, we have a threshing wheel or a grinding wheel. And so uh, you're not just taking raw wheat out of the ground, you're going to grind it. And then you're going to do what? You're going to bake it. And uh, wow, that sounds even more painful. (laughs) So the threshing process, the grinding process, the baking process, and then, uh, you know, how much work does it take to, to make a loaf of bread? And yet this is the metaphor that's used for our experience in, in many ways related to these things. And thank God for it, that He does uh, thresh us and grind us and bake us and, uh, and equip us for His good pleasure. All right, so comparison of verse 8 to verse 26 I think is useful as we see the sifting process, the, uh, the winnowing process, uh, and this is what the king does visually with his eyes as he sits on the throne of justice. Uh, functioning in wisdom, he can rule with righteous judgment. And when we back up to chapter 16, we're going to actually review a study that we did before. In a fairly lengthy study, verses 10 through 15, how many sections of Proverbs are that lengthy? Proverbs is ty- typically verse by verse, one at a time, maybe two in a pair On rare occasions, you can get a third or a fourth. But this is, you know, essentially, this is six verses here, 10 through 15, that are all dealing with uh, these political issues here. A divine decision is in the lips of the king. When he speaks, he is reflecting God's choice because God's the one that put him there. And so when the king decides this is our policy, uh, we realize, well, God's the one who put him there. And so this is a policy that I'm expected to submit to as unto the Lord. A divine decision is on the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. So he better fear God and be seeking God's wisdom so he can speak appropriately and not be presumptuous and not speak, thus saith the Lord, when it's really just his opinion. It's really just his his will. So if he's out of sorts with the Lord, then he's the abomination that the Lord's going to have to deal with. Yes, sir. I lost my screen. Alright, let me see if I can reshare that. The desk is telling me reshare my stream. Thank you. Is it sharing again? Technical issues. You got it now. Okay. Excellent. pray, pray hard. When we think about all of the technology that's required just for people to sit at home and watch on YouTube, the, uh, there's, just, there's about seven pieces. And if any one out of those seven pieces drops or malfunctions or has a glitch or whatever, any one of those seven will derail the entire thing. And uh, anyway, it is what it is and we just pray and trust God will do what He wants to do. All right. But here's this section, Proverbs 16 verses 10-15, through and I'm not going to reteach the whole thing but you've got notes on it as we were back in chapter 16. A divine decision is in the lips of the king, his mouth should not err in judgment. If he's out of line and speaking presumptuously then the Lord will deal with that or it might be that that's why God put him there, that God put a man, a wicked king in there for judgment and He's disciplining the people of that land for that reason. Alright, then we have economics. Just balance and scales belong to the Lord and all the weights of the bag are His concern. He's involved in economic integrity, in the appropriate and fair exchange when, when human beings are trading with one another uh, and God has His eye on that. He's got his, uh, an interest in that. He doesn't want um, the lies to, uh, to succeed. And so that 's why the balance can 't be uh, doctored. you have to have adjust scales and uh, the weights you have to have appropriate weights that 's why even in modern times we have the, the the international standards for making sure that an ounce is an ounce, a gallon is a gallon, and you're not getting ripped off at the gas pump if you thought you put seventeen gallons in your tank and really they only put sixteen gallons in your tank and they charged you for seventeen because they're they're stealing the, the difference. They're they're making money on the shady on the shady deal. Verse twelve says it's an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on Righteousness. This is what's designed, and so when there's a, a king in there for our blessing, that's uh, then then it's operating according to the laws of divine establishment, and uh, and things are marvelous for the for the people, the subjects of that country. Uh, if God has put an abomination in there in His permissive will, then uh, that's uh, hopefully will wake a nation up to realize, wow, we're not right before the Lord. We need to humble ourselves and and. Uh, and, and And change what we're doing, righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. It goes on to say the fury of a king is like messengers of death, but a wise man will appease it. You don't want the government against you when you try to fight city hall and uh, and you're public enemy number one in the eyes of the mayor or the governor or the president, or whoever else uh, that's not a good place to be It's much better if um, if you appease the uh, the mayor and the county commissioner's court and the governor and the president and all the rest. In the light of a king's face his life and his favor is like a cloud with the spring rain. In other words it's beneficial to you in your society. Alright. We'll see the example of Solomon here in a moment. The um, sitting on a throne of justice, functioning in wisdom, he can rule with righteous judgment. And and we should be praying for our leaders. Uh, Timothy tells us to pray for our leaders, pray for the political leaders, that they would be humble before God and growing in the Word of God, that they'd be saved. And first of all, you've got to have them saved. But then they'd be disciples, living in the Word of God, growing in grace and knowledge. And uh, to me it's not accidental that Mosaic Law commanded that when a new king takes office, when he follows his father and becomes now the, the new king of Israel, first thing he had to do was write out by hand his own copy of the, of the Torah, his own copy of the law. In his own hand, in his own scroll. See? And uh, I tell you, the things you write out yourself, you, you remember. And it's a point of humility for these kings to understand the law that they themselves are under. Alright. Well, ruling with righteous judgment. Let's look at Proverbs 31 verses 8 and 9. I'm just going to take it by faith. Things are going well until I get another raised hand from the recording desk. All right. Hmm. Open your mouth for the mute. This is Proverbs 31 verses 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute. In other words, if they can't speak for themselves, you speak for them. That's fair, that's righteous, that's just. For the rights of all the unfortunate. Remember God speaks so tenderly of the widow and the orphan and, and for those that are the uh, what are called the unfortunate. Today the uh, the language is the underprivileged. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. So this uh, there is a valid place to do this. And these are in the instructions of to a king. In, in Proverbs 31 these are the, the words of his mother to Lemuel. The words of King Lemuel the oracle which his mother taught him. And uh, But before we get to Proverbs 31 we're going to have to figure out who Lemuel is and who his mother is. Is this a code name? Is this a pet name? Is this actually Solomon? And uh, the, the wisdom that Bathsheba bestowed upon him? I think so. But there's other traditions and understandings and, and ideas there. So anyway stay tuned. And uh, instructions for the king. And so if there is a political leader that thinks that um, the underprivileged need to be uh, abused, that's a problem, or manipulated, that's a bigger problem. I think that's the worst kind of abuse. When you manipulate a, a particular group claiming that you're helping them but really you're just using them. And you perpetually keep them in that state of need because you don't want to ever solve a problem. That removes your, your, uh, your power base. All right. See, I told you, we're going to get political this hour and when that happens, sometimes rabbit trails will take you different places. So, uh, but a king functioning in wisdom, sitting on a throne of justice can rule with righteous judgment. And he can be pleasing to the Lord and he can be pleasing to his mom uh, even though he's the king and his mom is sitting there on a throne at his right hand um, and you know uh, you know, your things are doing well when your mom is spiritually minded and she's praying for you and she's happy and she knows that you're serving the Lord in the way that He's designed. Alright, John 7.24, like I said, we'll be looking at this this morning. John 7.24, do not judge according to appearance but judge with righteous judgment. Now the context on this by the way Um, all this hostility and the Pharisees that want him dead and uh, (laughs) he says, did not Moses give you the law yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? I can't think of a a more shocking set of statements that Jesus could have made to these Pharisees than looking at a crowd of Pharisees and saying none of you keeps the law. Because they they wake up every day thinking that they're the champion law keepers of, of planet earth that they are the Pharisees of the Pharisees, the Jews of the Jews, and the best of the best. And he says, none of you carries out the law. So that's shock number one. And then he says, why do you seek to kill me? Now they weren't shocked by that, but they were shocked that he would say it out loud. Because it's true. They just don't want the people to know that, he wants, that they want him dead. So the crowd answered, you have a demon, who seeks to kill you? Well, see the crowd's ignorant, but the Pharisees know the deal. And Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses but from the fathers and on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. In other words, guess what? You have to, the boys had to be circumcised on the eighth day. So what happens if the boy was born on a Friday? That means the following, eight days later on the following Saturday the Mosaic law commanded they have to circumcise these boys. Because the law says do it on the 8th day. But then the law also says don't break the Sabbath. So now they've got this conundrum. What do we do? Every, every boy born on a Friday is going to make us break the Sabbath 8 days later. Anyway, so the solution of course, and it's not hard to figure out, is that if you're doing what God told you to do you're not breaking the Sabbath. So um, you're not breaking the Sabbath if you're doing what God tells you to do. So here's Jesus doing what God tells him to do. He's not breaking the Sabbath either. Anyway, he's, by highlighting what they do he's illustrating why they're so hypocritical in attacking him. But if a man received circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? You know, He healed the guy, so what if it was the Sabbath? He's doing what the Father had for him to do. He's obeying God. You're not a Sabbath breaker when you're obeying God. That's why he then concludes with stop judging or do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And this was the thing, Pharisaic legalism is all about appearances. It's all about the externals. It's all about what people can see and observe and know. And uh, I tell you, if you've ever known any legalists or maybe in your past you used to be a legalist, uh, you understand appearances are critical. (laughs) You've got to keep up the appearances because that's, uh, that's the, the majority emphasis here. Anyway, I like pointing to, to John 7, 24, uh, uh, judge with righteous judgment because that's a command, judge with righteous judgment. And when one of these Bible haters tries to throw, judge not lest thou be judged in, in my face, I just smile and come back with, well the Bible commands me to judge with righteous judgment. And so I'm, I'm commanded to judge. And even, extra credit here today, Matthew 7.1 it's not an absolute statement that says do not judge. It says do not judge so that you will not be judged. And that tandem is critical. That puts both halves together to recognize that um, you're held to the same standard that you hold other people to. And, when, and in case you think I'm mistaken just read the next verse for in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure it will be measured to you. So when, when somebody tells you quit being so judgmental, just smile. And say I'm not judgmental but I'm discerning, I have biblical discernment and I hold myself to the same standard that I hold anybody else to as I evaluate people, places and things and you know with biblical norms and standards. Otherwise, why are we even taking specks out of eyes and logs out of eyes? Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite! Now Jesus doesn't say, leave the specks where they are, leave the logs where they are, mind your own business and, and love everybody. He says, you've got to take the log out of your eye first, then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not just saying, you know, judge not and leave the speck there. You see how they abuse this whole text? It's it's sad. Alright. So if you're sitting on a throne of justice and you're functioning in wisdom, you can rule with righteous judgment. Now none of us will probably be president of the United States one day, but uh, we all have capacities in which we are expected to have, make judgments. We're all expected to have discernment in our decision making. And so if you're a, a, a pastor or you're a deacon or you're a a leader or you're a a parent, you have whatever leadership capacity God puts you in, make sure that your decision-making process, your judgments are, are biblical with righteous judgment. And be God's instrument for blessing. National blessing, church blessing, family blessing, whatever the context is for your leadership, you are the conduit of God's blessing when you are judging appropriately, in the case of a, of a king or a president, the, and you're judging appropriately, then uh, it's national blessing. You are the inst- God's instrument for national blessing. John nineteen eleven. And this is when uh, Jesus is standing before Pilate, and uh, they're shouting. The crowds are shouting, "Crucify, crucify!" And Pilate said to them, "Take." him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him and the Jews answered him, we have a law and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Therefore when Pilate heard this statement he was even more afraid and he entered the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me, do you not know? I have authority to release you, I have authority to crucify you. Pretty dictatorial, the the discretion that Pilate had under Rome's appointment. And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And so this is a curious thing. It's a powerful statement actually to show the sovereignty of God. Pontius Pilate wouldn't even be the governor had God not assigned that as his position. And he who delivered me, the betrayer has the greater accountability in the eyes of God. The greater sin. A Pilate still has a sin, but the, uh, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, uh, the role of, of Judas Iscariot as the traitor, all of these volitional participants, I think the least of them is Pontius Pilate. Because he's just kind of between the rock and the hard place. Uh, they, they've got him uh, in a tough spot. As a result of this Pilate made efforts to release him but the Jews cried out saying if you release this man you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar. And there were some political issues involved between Pilate and Caesar and uh, if word was to get to Caesar that Pilate was, was mishandling his appointment it wouldn't go well for Pilate. So the, you see how political these, these, uh, this, these priests are, the Sanhedrin? They, they know the spot that He's in and they're manipulating it very well. But the point being in verse 11 there you would have no authority unless it have been given you from above. That is Jesus speaking the truth and it agrees with every other passage of Scripture that we can focus on this topic. There is no authority in office that got there apart from God's directive will or His permissive will. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a That's a fact. And that includes the president we have now, every president we've had before him, and every president we have after him, assuming we have any more. See? It's because God's sovereignty is directing human affairs. Romans 13.4 This is why we are to be subject, verse 1 says be in subjection to the governing authorities. Not just the good ones, not just the ones you like, not just the ones you voted for. The ones that are governing. Governing means they're in office, they're operating. And uh, if they're in office, God put them there. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So if they exist, if they're in office, God put them there. Don't resist God's authority. Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Here's the point in point four, verse four, "...it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil." That's why the sword, it was not given to individuals, it was not given other than for self-defense, it was not given to husbands to inflict violence upon their wives, it was not given to parents to inflict violence upon their children. Discipline is a different issue. But the sword is given to the state. It's given to government. That's where we resolve righteousness and non-righteousness. That's where evildoers are punished. And we don't just grab up a posse and grab our clan and go have a Hatfields and McCoy kind of uh, uh, a battle in the woods. If we have a, a legal dispute then there is a legal procedure. We have kings, we have courts, we have judges, and this is the provision so that we have peace in our land. And not the tribal clan warfare that most of the world seems to uh, degenerate into. 1 Peter 2.14 Governors are sent by God for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, for such is the will of God. That's so why we submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to kings or to governors as sent by him. So uh, this is what we deal with. Now Solomon is the best example of this that we have, of a king sitting on a righteous throne judging with righteous judgment, having the eyes that can sift through good and evil, can detect the lies, uh, the famous illustration of course with the two women that come to him in First Kings uh, 3, 16-28. And we know the story. Two women who were harlots came to hit the king and stood before him. And one woman said, oh, my Lord, and this woman and I live in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Now, you would think, keep in mind, we, we already read the the passages relating to those without a, mo- a voice, uh, those that are unfortunate, okay, and, uh, you know, you, you a petty king, a petty tyrant, uh uh, somebody that was not mindful of, of God's authority in his life uh, is not going to take the time to sort something out between two women. Uh, you know, much less two prostitutes, see. And yet notice he takes the time and he addresses this and he sees through. His eyes are able to filter and sift. It happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child and We were together, there was no stranger with us in the house, only two of us in the house, and this woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So she rose in the middle of the night, took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept, laid him in her bosom, and laid her dead son in my bosom. Must have been a heavy sleeper. (laughs) When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold he was dead, but when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold he was not my son whom I have borne. Yeah, okay, there's an accusation. But the other woman said no, for the living one is my son, the dead one is your son. But the first woman said no, the dead one is your son. Is not, is two. is not, is two. You know, it's like two kids fighting over a whatever. Alright. But the king said and this is where again he, his wisdom and he unveils this So the king said, get me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two, give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman didn't really mean it of course, but the woman whose uh, child was the living one spoke to the king for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, oh no my lord, please give her the living child, by no means kill him. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours Divide him." Can you imagine? One of them said, yeah I'm good with that. <laughs> then you end up with two dead babies and neither woman has a son and anyway. The king said, aha, you're the real mom. Give the first woman the living child she, and by no means kill him. She is the mother. Anyway, famous story, well known, and, uh, and it worked. But it's the illustration of what happens here in Proverbs 20 in verse 8 where the king's eyes are able to sift. Dispersing all evil with his eyes. Sifting all evil with his eyes. Threshing, if you will. Evil with his eyes. So pray for that. Pray for our mayor, pray for our king, I mean our, our governor, pray for our president. Pray that they can sift evil with their eyes and they can see it for what it is and have God's discernment in all the lies that, uh, that are being brought against them. Alright, let's look at total depravity in verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my, ear, my heart I am pure from my sin. Who can say? Now as a rhetorical question the expected answer is nobody. And in ourselves that's absolutely true. No human being in their own righteousness, in their own um, worth can declare that they can stand before God. Who can say I have cleansed my heart? And none of us saved ourselves. None of us cleansed our heart. God cleansed our heart when He saved us. So who can say I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Well, none of us made ourselves that way. So this is the the doctrine of total depravity. It's communicated here. It's communicated throughout Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. We're, We're solid on this. Total depravity in Adam is universal. As only the grace of God saves us and cleanses us from sin. Only the grace of God saves us and cleanses us from sin. So thank God there's more than just this verse. There's more than the hopeless verses of our human depravity in the Scripture. But these are good verses to know and it's it's an important doctrine to review and to consider uh, particularly as we engage with our culture and we talk to folks that have an unbiblical anthropology. And they fail to recognize that we are not born, they, they'll tell you that we're born clean slate, we're born innocent, we're born good, that humans are basically good, but it's only the product of poor education or bad environment or um, you know, politicians we disagree with or, or what have you. Uh, they, they can point the blame at all kinds of things and say, well, if it wasn't for all this then these are still basically good people. Not so. We're all sinners in Adam. And that needs to be trumpeted from every rooftop that in a biblical anthropology we're all sinners. We all, uh, the the best we can produce, the greatest achievements we have in personal righteousness are filthy garments and God wants nothing to do with them. And so uh, these passages are are very straightforward and they're worth memorizing. Job 14.4 in complete agreement with Proverbs 20 in verse 9. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Okay? And here's a... This is Job replying to one of his accusers, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. All right? So raise your hand if your mom was a woman. All of us, this is a, a, a universal principle for all of humanity in Adam... Short-lived and full of turmoil, like a flower he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. You also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. So not only is life short, but as soon as it's over we have to stand before our judge. We are accountable. So who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. You have a clean cloth, a dirty cloth, you rub them together, what happens? They're both now dirty. The dirty rubs off, that's how it works. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Turn your gaze from him that he may rest. There's a lot more that comes into this. I like some of the uh, promises of resurrection, some of the hope of eternal life. It's communicated here. And Job had no scripture. This is all pre-Abraham in his, in his uh, spirituality before the Lord. Turn your gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his days like a hired man. There's hope for a tree when it's cut down that it will sprout again and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground, its stump di- uh, dies in the dry soil. And uh, at the scent of water it will flourish and put springs uh, sprigs like a plant. Kind of interesting how you can revive a, uh, a stump like that if it's got the deep roots. But a man dies and lies prostrate. Man expires and where is he? as water evaporates from the sea, as a river becomes parched and dried up, so a man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. He will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. But guess what? Heavens and earth will pass away. A new heaven and earth will uh, arrive and there is a universal resurrection of the righteous to eternal life and the unrighteous to eternal death. Oh, that you would hide me in shale, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you, that you would set a limit for me and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. You will call, I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. For now you number my steps, you do not observe my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you wrap up my iniquity. What a testimony. He has a personal redeemer, he's saved, his sins are sealed up, he's waiting for a future resurrection, he will stand before his judge. Job has a a fully comprehensive theological, systematic theology, and no scriptures. No written canon of scripture. Moses hasn't written Genesis yet. There's no Hebrew canon. Obviously there's no New Testament either, no Greek canon. He has zero written scriptures but a frame of reference for theology that we can appreciate. All right, next chapter, Job 15:14 through 16. What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Just that's not the 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 order since Adam and Eve fell into sin. Everything replicates after their kind and sinners beget sinners. That's been our estate since Adam. And then the whispering of the fallen angels in his critics' ears, behold he puts no trust in his holy ones and the heavens are not pure in his sight. The grumbling of the fallen angel to say God doesn't even approve of of, uh, Lucifer and all of those that he threw out of heaven. So you human creatures have no chance. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. So you can hear the scorn there in those verses as the fallen angels are mocking um, human beings. Job 25, verses 4 and 6. How can man be just with God? This is Bildad the Shuhite. Trick question, but the shortest man in the Bible? Bildad the Shuhite. All right. That's the only thing you're going to remember when you walk out of here this afternoon. How was class this morning? Let me tell you about the shortest man. Dominion and awe belong to Him who establishes peace in His heights. Is there any number to His troops? And upon whom does His light not rise? How then can a man be just with God? Or how can He be clean who is born of a woman? as glorious as God is, as majestic, as righteous, as pure, as holy, how can man stand in his presence? He, how can he be clean who is born of a woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm. Very insulting. The angels despise us. Calling us maggots and worms. But think about it. Even Jesus said, I am a worm and not a man, as he's hanging on the cross. Read Psalm 22 sometime and, and see he humbled himself to provide our eternal life. Psalm 51 5. David's testimony Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This is the total depravity of human beings. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. So from conception to birth he entered this world as, uh, as an unrighteous unbeliever in Adam. Behold you desire truth in the innermost being in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. See we can't save ourselves but God can save us. God can make us clean. Even before verse 5, there's the verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. All right, so that's Psalm 51. We'll come back to that in the second part because it's the grace of God that saves us and cleanses us from sin. The positional cleansing and then obviously the experiential cleansing when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He cleanses us because He's already cleansed us. The experiential cleansing is just the foot washing compared to the bath. He gave us the bath when He saved us. And we are clean, we are eternally clean from that moment ever on. Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. The menstrual rags is how Colonel Theme used to address this as it was practiced in the ancient world like a filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf, our iniquities like a wind take us away. So there's nothing that we can commend ourselves to. We can't stand before God and impress Him with anything we've done, even if we've impressed ourselves or we've impressed other people. We stand before God and He's not impressed. We are unclean, we are unrighteous. Anything we produce is relative righteousness as opposed to the absolute righteousness of God Himself. And relative righteousness doesn't, doesn't cut it, even if you are better than the next guy. Even if you're better than everybody else you've ever known. It's still relative righteousness. It is unclean. So this is the universal depravity, total depravity of Adam, and it is universal. Because only the grace of God saves us and cleanses us from sin. Psalm 24 verses 3-6. through 6. "...the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it." We're going to do more work with fullness statements. King James had a lot of fullness statements and I think that's the better translation, honestly, from the Hebrew manuscripts that have the fullness statements. "...the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers." Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? So, what earth being is there that thinks he can travel to God's glory and have a right to stand there? Well, here's the answer He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, who has not sworn deceitfully. So, that's the answer, which we can apply to everybody and say, well, none of us qualify. But we can also, we can take it, we can apply it to Jesus and say, wow, He qualifies. Isn't Jesus the one with clean hands and a pure heart? Isn't Jesus the one who has not lifted up His soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully? Seems to me that Jesus meets the qualifications for someone who can ascend into the hill of the Lord and stand in His holy place. And thankfully it's true, He did. He died on the cross and He went to Heaven and He applied His blood, He cleansed the temple. And uh, all these things are marvelous truths in the Word of God. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. And this is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Anyway, then the king gets to come into his kingdom in verses 7 and following. I'm going to run out of time if I get lost in that. Psalm 51. Now we were just there in Psalm 51 when we were looking at the total depravity in verse 5. But look at these verses that surround it. And they're verses that speak of washing. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. So that's the only way that God's going to be gracious. Not based upon what we've earned and deserved, but according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. So God is the one who cleanses. When you get down to verses 7-10 through you see this, "...purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me." See, God's the one who does this. Now this is a confession chapter. This is David who's already a believer He's already saved, but he's got to confess his sins because he's committed adultery with Bathsheba and he's murdered Uriah and he's got uh, got all kinds of sins that Mosaic law does nothing for him. There's nothing Levitical that's going to save him. Mosaic law uh, condemns him twice over. He should be stoned as an adulterer, he should be stoned as a murderer. So there's nothing that the the high priest can do for him and and there's nothing Levitical. All he can do is confess and um, and pour his uh, his heart out before the righteousness of God in this confession, and this is what the Lord accepts. He says, uh, "Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Down to verse sixteen, he says, "You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. <laughs> you are not pleased with burnt offering." Like I say, there's nothing Levitical that would help David in this incident. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See the shadow doctrine taught principles, but the reality is something else entirely. The reality is what you should be learning in the shadow doctrine through the rituals. Broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And uh, God will accept it. It's a sweet-smelling savor you will not despise. Alright, so that's Psalm 51. Only the grace of God saves us and cleanses us from sin. John thirteen ten. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean and you are clean. But not all of you. Because there's still one unbeliever in the crowd, that's Judas Iscariot. He knew the one who was betraying him for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. See this is when he starts to wash their feet and Peter says never shall you wash my feet. (laughs) So Jesus said if I do not wash you you have no part with me. Peter knows oops messed up. So he said Lord then wash not only my feet but my hands and my hands and my head. You know we can learn a lot from Peter. Mostly we learn what not to do. We learn by the negative example. And uh, you know, if you think too little and speak too much, uh, and act too fast, then then that's very Peter-like. Uh, maybe we need to slow down and think more and speak less, and uh, and be more Christ-like. So he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And so this is what we deal with: our salvation is our bath, and we are completely clean. But because we do sin as believers, we need the foot washing. See? And so Jesus is illustrating why we have 1 John 1, 1.9 after we're already saved. That because we have the ongoing sins we need to confess those so that we can be cleansed from all unrighteousness. What a blessing that He's given us. 1 Corinthians 6.11 Some people misteach 1 Corinthians 6. Because they look at this list of people that uh, can't inherit the kingdom. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals nor thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. (laughs) Okay? And a legalist can preach it and and harangue all those people. Bad people, you're you're going to hell. But what does the passage say? Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And so whatever you were, now you are clean. You are righteous. You are saved by grace through faith. So such were some of you. It doesn't say you quit fornicating, you quit drinking, you quit. All those sins, they're still sins, And a believer can still do those sins, but he's no longer in that categorical position. He's no longer labeled with that. He is no longer judicially uh, indicted as such. Whatever it was he used to be is no more because he's now a new creation in Christ. He has been washed, he has been sanctified, he has been justified. And positionally in the courtroom of Heaven that's the entire point. This is why we're justified. We don't get justified by stopping the sin, turning over a new leaf, repenting and 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 you know, trying to have the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. Because that, that's again, that's relative righteousness. Relative righteousness. And 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 some people like to soothe their conscience and say, well, it's been a while since I've done it. So I'm not really, I mean, I'm not really a thief anymore. The last time I stole a car was, you know. You know, yeah but you stole 600 cars over how many times do you have to do something to have that label before you are what you have done? You know, I think if you've murdered one person you're a murderer for the rest of your life. You are a murderer because you've murdered. But see this is the relative scale. This is the relative scale. In absolute terms the murderer who comes to faith in Christ is washed he's cleansed he's regenerated he's sanctified he's justified and judicially speaking he's no longer a murderer he will stand in the judgment seat of Christ having been justified because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for that sin it's a marvelous truth all right finally hebrews 10:22 on the basis of our salvation we can have a marvelous priesthood. Verse 19 says, therefore brethren since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. So we're New Testament believer priests and we stand in the holy of holies in the heavenly places. We stand before our heavenly Father within the veil that is His flesh and we have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near. "...with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water." We saw this verse on Sunday because in Hebrews they were asking for prayer for a, for a good conscience. "...and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful." But the point being we have been cleansed and it's the grace of God that cleanses us, it's the grace of God that saves us. And on that basis We can come back to Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 9 and answer the question, who can say I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? We all can. Because Jesus did it when we got saved. I am pure from my sin. And if Satan wants to try to hold something over my head and run me through a ringer of guilt, forget about it. He's disarmed. Those weapons have no effect anymore. Because I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin. What a joy. Father I thank you for this morning, I thank you for truth, I thank you for the blessing we have to assemble together and all the lessons that we have in the book of Proverbs. They are timeless, they are eternal, they are applicable today as they've ever been. We thank you Father and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.